0: Welcome to Stanford Innovation Lab. I'm Tina Seelig, Professor of the Practice in the Department of Management Science and Engineering at Stanford University. This podcast is designed to give you a taste of the topics we explore in our classes on innovation and entrepreneurship. Our guest for today's show is Clara Shai. In addition to being CEO and founder of Hearsay Social, Clara is also on the board of Starbucks and the author of two books on social media. I've known Clara since she was a student at Stanford in 2004 I'm delighted to have her on the show today. In this episode of Stanford Innovation Lab, Clara shares her insights on social media strategy, including approaches for engaging the constantly connected consumer. I really found this conversation with Clara fascinating, and I'm sure you will too. Clara, it's such a special treat to have you here with us today. Why don't you tell those who don't know you as well as I do a little bit about yourself? Sure.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and pleasure to be here. Um, So, Clara Shai, I'm the CEO and founder of Hearsay Social. I'm also on the board of Starbucks, and I've authored two books, most recently The Social Business Imperative, that just came out
0: last month. Great. Super, well, I know we're gonna to talk today about the constantly connected consumer. That's a very nice little tongue twister there. And before we dive into it, I thought it would be fun to do a flashback to 2005. We had Mark Zuckerberg speak in our Entrepreneur Thought leader Lecture Series, and he was talking about his vision for the Facebook at that time. It was really different than it is now. So gonna play that, and then we're gonna talk about what's happened since then. That sounds
1: great.
2: So when we're designing stuff, we look not necessarily just about what any given user is going to experience, but what's kind of better for the whole community and the whole product. And I mean, it's kind of like a lot of these trade-offs are going on all over the place in the product. Um, probably the most that you see every day is um, that you can't see the profiles of people at other schools. You know, I and mean, that's a really major trade-off in the application. For those of you who aren't familiar with this, we split up the user base by what school they go to, and, um, and we make it so that people at a given school can only see the profiles and contact information of people at their school. And the reason for this was mostly to, because we realized that um, the people around you at your school are the people who you're going to want to look up mostly anyway, and if we made this base too broad, and let anyone see your information, then that would probably be fine and you'd look up some people, but you also probably wouldn't wouldn't put up your cell phone. And more than a third of people on Facebook have their cell phone up there, and that's something that's useful for the application. So in designing it, this was a trade-off that we made. Um, I kind of thought about this for a while and I was like, well, what would be more useful? Would it be better for people to be able to see everyone um, and maybe not feel like this was a secure environment in which they could share their interests and what they thought and what they cared about? Or would it be better that more information and more expression was available, but to a smaller audience, which is probably the relevant audience for any person. So, I mean, there's a lot of decisions like that 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 are getting made, and I mean, a lot of them are gut level.
0: So clearly, Facebook has changed dramatically since then, with a focus on a small, closed community to becoming a global platform for communication between individuals and organizations. What are your thoughts about that dramatic change over the last 12 years? It is just incredible. I don't think anyone,
1: probably including Zach, could have predicted how ubiquitous and how transformational Facebook has been for, for really, for society. And of course, business, businesses are a part of that. And there's no business today that doesn't think that it needs to do something on Facebook. But there's still a gap between knowing that you should be there and versus knowing what to do and actually seeing a return.
0: Great, So so many companies have existed long before there was Facebook and all these other social platforms. And now they're living in this world where it's ubiquitous. What are companies doing to adapt this new age? So I think the, the typical way
1: that companies enter into social media is they'll go either through marketing, through a social media marketer, um, and or they'll go through customer support because they'll, they'll start picking up complaints through Facebook or, or more often on Twitter, and they will want to respond to that. I think it's a great start to kind of dip your toe in the water. I think the much bigger opportunity for companies is to think of social business much more strategically. It's not just about marketing. It's actually an opportunity to completely rethink your entire client engagement model and your even your business model in some cases.
0: Can you give some examples of companies that are doing a really good job of this?
1: The thing about a constantly connected consumer is that the way that the companies they're most loyal to tend to be the ones with whom they have frequent digital interactions. And if you're a company that 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 grew up pre-digital, pre-Facebook, you kind of are at an at a inherent disadvantage, but there are ways around that. And so you think about companies like insurance companies where the interactions between insurance companies and customers are both infrequent and generally analog. And so you think, well, how can you take this, this type of model and adapt it for the constantly connected consumer. And this is really where I, I look to John Hancock Insurance. or the oldest insurance company in the US, and they've done really some, something remarkable. They realized that um, an adjacency to selling life insurance was understanding and helping promote people's health. And so last year, they launched a program um, where they partnered with Fitbit and Apple watch and they, they give away these wearable fitness trackers and it's completely opt-in for their customers to take these these fitness trackers and to share their step count and exercise information with John Hancock now the reason to do this is is that um, it turns out that the actuarial tables have told us for a long time that the more that you move the more active you are the longer you'll live The the more likely you are to be healthy and so the company is actually trying to through transparency and exposing this information Through gamification and rewards they're trying to get people to move more and specifically their customers to move more Because what happens when someone lives longer is that it's great for that customer It's also great for the life insurance company because it delays the the death payment that they have to make
0: so clearly These companies need to engage with the consumer, but who at the company should be doing this? Is this just the marketing department? Is this customer service? Who should be engaging with the outside world through social media? So the challenge with most
1: companies, and this is why most companies aren't seeing transformational return as a result of their social media investment, is they typically delegate social and digital to a pretty junior level team, and in some cases, even an intern. And to do that is really to miss the biggest opportunity in our lifetimes, arguably. To do that is, is, would be akin to a retailer in the late 90s thinking that they could hire an intern to manage their online internet strategy and then thinking they could check the box and go back to running their brick and mortar stores. The same thing is happening with social today. And so you, you look at what John, John Hancock has done where they've, they've actually shifted to a new business model. It's not just about marketing. It's not just about customer service. It's a completely new business model. It's a new pricing model because these insurance customers will pay less the more they exercise.
0: So clearly we're in a brave new world where there's a lot of opportunities and a lot of experimentation. I'm going to play you a clip from Jennifer Ocker, who's at Stanford Business School, who spends a lot of time thinking about this and talking about experimentation in this space.
3: companies that do allow experimentation by personal individuals, the personal brands are being built. So people are having their own little brand following. And then they tweet out and they have their own personality and that kind of adds and amplifies and increases authenticity and trust. And so I think that's so interesting is when companies allow personal individuals within the company or customers, JetBlue let the terminal man, have you guys heard this? that Jeb Blue did a $5.99 thing last year and I guess again this year, all you can jet, you buy $5.99, you can go anywhere. So Terminal Man, he self-branded himself Terminal Man, um, bought this $5.99 thing and he decided he was going to spend one month never leaving terminals. so he flew all over the United States, never leaving a terminal. And he would blog and video and he became this celebrity and these, you know, medias would follow him. And then he started commenting on JetBlue's service, like sitting in first class right now, not too shabby, you know. And then the pilots would come talk to him. And then JetBlue actually didn't just like sort of try and you know, silence him to some degree. They, they talked to him like, well, you didn't like this. Why didn't you like this? They brought him to his leadership conference and he spoke and said, You people are doing it all wrong. Let me tell you what you should do. They, um, there's some companies that are hiring these types of people. So I think that, um, honestly, it's crazy. And so I think companies that experiment and allow personal voice to bubble up and experiment there are going to be so far ahead of companies that don't allow experimentation.
0: So Claire, what do you think about this? What kind of experiments are you seeing that are really paying off?
1: Jennifer is so great. I think that that culture, that mindset of experimentation and almost expecting that you're not going to get it right the first time or even first few times is so important. And of course, it's something that we live and breathe here in Silicon Valley, but that, that fear of failure, I think, is is very pervasive across corporate America. Um, I love the examples that Jennifer gave. Um, every time I walk into Howard Schultz's office at Starbucks, the first thing that I see is he's got a display of Mazagran bot- bottles and most of you probably don't even know what that is, but Mazagran, uh, I think it was probably a decade or more ago, was Starbucks's first ready-to-drink beverage. It was, a, it was a, I think it was a carbonated coffee beverage, and it was a complete flop. And so you might ask yourself, why would Howard Schultz have that in his office, of all the things that he could fit there? And it's there to remind him that without Mazagran, there would be no Frappuccino. And Frappuccino today, of course, is a billion-dollar-plus business, growing rapidly, and so it's just—I think whether it's on or off social media, experimentation is in, is critically important. Now, the fascinating thing about social media, as Jennifer pointed out, is that now it's not just the company and employees of the company who can do the experimentation. Now you can almost crowdsource that experimentation and look for ideas, creative ideas, whether it's Terminal Man or some other initiative that you can really partner with.
0: Isn't that great? I mean, really, they're leveraging the creativity of their clients, of their customers as opposed to saying they have to do it all themselves exactly. it's It's really a, a dream come true. It's a great partnership, so should people get training in social media? Should people in a company be be told um, how they should engage with the customers?
1: I think so. I mean, it's certainly if you were um, you know, I, I think brands need to be protected. They need to be maintained. And, of course, you want it to be authentic um, coming from employees, but some, some sort of ground rules, and especially if you're in a regulated firm, um, a regulated industry, it's, it's critically important to establish what those compliance rules are, what the brand guidelines are, and let employees know what's okay and what's not okay, and, and actually give them support
0: around it. Great. Of course, then you leverage, you know, everyone in the company who can then be uh, communicating on your behalf. So one of the things that's, of course, very powerful about social media is that the consumer gets to talk back and they get to uh, voice their pleasure and displeasure, their raves and their rants. Uh, I'm going to play you a short clip from Justin Rosenstein, who's the founder, co-founder of Asana, uh, but he was at Facebook before that and was on the team that developed the like button. And I think it's super interesting to, to hear his thoughts on this and, the f- and to then talk about um, how this has really shifted the power uh, to others to, to give feedback on ideas.
4: Um, after that I went to Facebook where I um, went from product management to engineering management and tech leading. Um, did a bunch of things that were really exciting to me including Facebook pages which was a really cool way to allow non-human entities to also participate in the social graph. Um, and then my hackathon project was the like button, um, which I helped lead uh, the development of as well. And uh, that came out of this observation that people were you know, using things like wall posts and comments to, to express affirmation and positivity. And I, I, it dawned on me, I was like, well, what if we could make it easier? What if we could make it so that the effort required was so low and eventually realized the lowest effort possible would be one click. Um, What if we could make it super easy for people to share that kind of positivity with each other? Um, And and that led to the the design of the like button. Um, To this day, the number one most requested feature that Facebook gets is the dislike button. (laughs) Which is funny to me because it really misses the point of the exercise. Um, We're trying to encourage and actually design the infrastructure and the social graph in, in a in a way that is opinionated, in a way that prefers a world in which we help each other, um, help affirm each other, rather than a world in which we tear each other down. So that's why there is a like and not a dislike button.
0: So clearly we live in a world where people wanna chime in. Tell us about your thoughts about how to harness all of this energy.
1: Well, it's just so interesting how Facebook went from having no buttons to having the like button to now having you can there's a love button there's a wow button sad angry and i think just the 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 expressiveness of social media whether it's these buttons or it's emojis which have which have just blown up how that's really helped more people more easily engage. And it's especially important on a mobile device, right? Because it's hard to type um, out full um, sentences and comments on mobile devices. So I think it's it's really incredible. And I it helps, um, it, it just connects more people, makes it easier to share and comment and relate. And then from a business perspective, now you have a lot more people sharing a lot more data about their preferences that can be used from an ad targeting and and customization perspective.
0: So let's talk about that ad targeting and customization. One thing that makes me really nervous is just all the data that is being collected about us. Do you think there's going to be a backlash about that?
1: I think there already have been several backlashes over time. I mean, just think of when you know Facebook initially launched Newsfeed. Mm-hmm. I mean, now it's their killer feature. It really defines what Facebook is, and it's become a core feature in so many other apps and products but at the time it seemed unthinkable it seemed like such an invasion of privacy and the fascinating thing that that i've seen that uh, from social media is that how effective how how uh, how just the degree to which as a society our privacy norms keep getting pushed out keep getting redefined uh, because you know i think consumers have, have shown that they're willing to give up more information in exchange for something of value. I mean, the credit card companies discovered this years ago, and we're seeing it now with social media.
0: So I know that you uh, launched Hearsay, or Hearsay Social, which is now a 200-person enterprise focused on helping companies tune their social media strategy. What do you do to help them?
1: So Hearsay Social is is laser-focused on... Financial advisors and insurance agents. So what we saw initially on social media, and now more broadly, was an opportunity for us to help relationship managers better connect and serve the clients who are in their network. We realized that there are a lot of advisors and agents who either do business with their friends, or become close personal friends or business colleagues with the clients that they work with, and that a lot of what gets shared, whether it's on Facebook or LinkedIn or or on Twitter, those are material events that if your advisor uh, your advisor really needs to know about so for example you know changing jobs um, having a baby those are instances those are money in motion life events that your advisor really should be proactive and reach out and tell you to to do a 401k rollover really should tell you proactively to set up a 529 college savings plan before the end of the tax year and so the whole idea behind hearsay was to help these agents and advisors hear what's being shared in their networks and then compliantly, since they're highly regulated, compliantly be able to say the right thing to the right person at the right time.
0: Super interesting. I had no idea that you were so focused on those markets. Did you explore other markets as well initially and then focus on these? We did. So at first we were, we
1: were serving all kinds of, of retail salespeople from um, multi-level marketing reps and, and car salespeople to real estate agents, insurance agents and whatnot. And what we found as a startup was the importance of focus. And so we did a market analysis, we analyzed the product market fit, and all signs pointed to financial services. And so we, we focused there and now we serve over 150,000 financial advisors.
0: So you wrote this new book called The Social Business Imperative. How different is this from your book that you wrote in 2009, The Facebook Era? Well,
1: it's the sequel. So in 2009, my book was, it was actually a very controversial title because when I was writing my book, MySpace technically was still bigger than Facebook in terms of the number of users. And so back then, the Facebook era, even the title was meant to be kind of provocative. And of course today we know that Facebook is 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 the dominant social network and, and an incredible company. And so I wanted to write a sequel that kind of went from vision and prediction to execution and best practices and, and started to ex- examine what was holding companies back from realizing their full potential on social. What kind of things do you recommend? So there were a few things. So number one was that, um, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of companies, a lot of company leaders over delegate social media to a junior marketing team. And what happens is that because the intern isn't empowered to change, to launch a new product or to change the business model, the company holds itself back from truly transformational change. And so I found that the best companies who really harness social media and have really become social businesses, whether it's Starbucks or it's JetBlue, it's really those companies, the CEOs, the management teams, and the boards personally take ownership and drive social business strategy. Now, of course they delegate the execution, but they own the strategy.
0: So a great example is Howard Schultz, CEO of Starbucks, asked you to be on their board. That's super interesting. How did that come about? And what sort of role do you play in guiding their social media strategy?
1: You know, it's really been an incredible journey. Um, So it came about when Sheryl Sandberg was stepping off of the board to join the Facebook board ahead of its IPO. Um, Like a lot of positions, Board positions are often referral-driven, and so Cheryl referred me and a few other people. And then I went through an interview process with with a search firm, which is also pretty typical for public company boards. Um, and it's just really been a, a fascinating experience. And um, you know, the the, the operating team at Starbucks, Chief Digital Officer, that entire team, they really deserve all the credit for their social business strategy and the successes that they've had across not just social, but also all the mobile digital loyalty efforts. And I really try to play a supporting role. I try to ensure that you know whatever board-level conversations we're having, that we're also thinking about the next generation customer, that we're also thinking about the role that digital and technology can play.
0: I just... It must be so fascinating to be on the board of Starbucks. Can you give us some behind the scenes dirt on what happens there? I don't
1: know if I can do that. Well, actually, there is one thing I can say, which is that you know comparing my board experience at Hearsay, which is startup versus Starbucks, so much such a bigger company in late stage, different industry, retail CPG, I've been struck by two things. You know one is just how entrepreneurial Starbucks still is. Uh, you know, after so many years, they're so hungry, they're so humble. And then second is just the incredible degree to which Starbucks thinks and acts like a technology company. On top of everything else that it does, it truly behaves that
0: way. So the world has changed so dramatically from 12 years ago when we heard Mark Zuckerberg talking about his vision for the Facebook to now. What do you see happening in the future? If you had to look into a crystal ball and think 10, 20 years from now. How is this going to be changing, and how will it change our lives?
1: Sure. So um, I talk about each of these in my book, but I'll I'll focus on three. The first is the rise of mobile messaging apps, whether it's WeChat in China, or it's WhatsApp, Snapchat, uh, Facebook Messenger, which they broke out from, from the Facebook mobile app. Um, mobile messaging is not just the future, it's the here and now. And right? What we experience, certainly here in the West, is just scratching the surface of what's possible. When you look at what WeChat is doing in China, it is truly remarkable. It's Open table plus Uber, plus Yelp, all in one. You know you can book doctors' appointments, you can pay your medical bills. You can even pay your parking tickets, parking fines through WeChat. In China, And I think um, Facebook is very much headed that direction with Messenger, or at least they're going to try. Um, so that's one area. Two is virtual reality and augmented reality. I mean, we know Facebook acquired Oculus and um, of course, more recently, Pokemon Go overtaking the world. I think that we're, again, we're just at the very early innings of what's going to play out with AR and VR. And then finally, I'd say um, the Internet of Things. I mean, we've, we've, we've talked about it now here in Silicon Valley for a few years. But it really hasn't taken hold yet. But the, but the idea of the self-driving connected car, the connected home, there is so much potential that's, that's about to play out in the coming decades.
0: And how will that be influenced or how will that influence social media? I think social
1: media will be, I mean, there's some of these where um, it, the idea of, I always think of the internet as the, the first wave of connectivity where we connected content. Social media was the second wave where we connected people, person to person. And the internet of things, is, it's the third wave of connectivity. And so, so in, in one sense, it's its its own thing. In another sense, there will certainly be, I think, interaction opportunities via objects so if i want to um, send something to you or if i want to deliver a package using a self-driving car there's there are definitely social interactions that are possible with objects
0: so so all of this will be integrated yes so i know you also care about other things besides just social media and that you're involved with an organization called girls inc and in fact donated the the profits for a book to girls inc can you tell us a little bit about it Girls,
1: Inc. is an incredible national organization. It, they focus on helping girls and women from underprivileged communities starting during adolescence. That's where a lot of, I think, the, the bullying, the self-image um, issues arise. And we you know, we mentor them and we, we get them through high school and then in many cases give them scholarships to go to college. And a lot of them are the first ones in their families to go to college. Wow. So it's, it's a really incredible organization. And I, I'd say my mentee, Ikra has has taught me much more than I could possibly ever hope to teach her.
0: That's terrific. So, Clara, as we close this out, what should companies be doing? What are the first steps should they should take if they want to make a very important dent in improving their social media presence? That's a great question, my favorite question. So
1: every business, every organization needs to think of, of four steps. Step one is just to be findable. Are you Googleable? Do you have a, an authentic, a beautiful presence on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, wherever your constituents are? Do you need all of those? It, you can. It depends on who you want to reach and where they tend to spend time. So that's step one. Step two is: Are you are you growing your network? You know, do you, are you connecting? Do you have followers? Do you have friends? Do you have connections? Because if you don't, then you can post all the content in the world and you'll be shouting into an empty room. Step three is once you have those connections, once you have those followers and other entities that you're following, listen first, listen first. What are they saying about you? What are they talking about your company? Both good, bad, and ugly. Because I think without that context, it's really hard for you to be effective talking. And that's the fourth step is, is continual engagement. What's the content that you can share that is relevant and valuable to your audience? Don't just talk about yourself all the time. Don't just talk about your product. Talk about these larger issues that, are, that, that matter to them beyond what you could potentially sell them down the road. So I think those are the general four steps. And, and again, if you're a larger company... Don't over-delegate social media strategy. Make sure that you take personal ownership for it, and you will then start to see transformational change.
0: This was so fabulous. How can people learn more, and how can they follow you? Thank you
1: for asking. So all the information about my book, of course, is available on social media. I'm at Clara Shih, so C-L-A-R-A-S-H-I-H, and also join the Facebook page for the book. It's facebook.com slash socialbizimperative.
0: Great. This was so wonderful. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Stanford eCorner and the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, the Entrepreneurship Center at Stanford School of Engineering. Our Innovation Lab Story producer is Deanna badiz and the technical producer and editor is Eli Schell. Sarah Kahn is our Digital Solutions Manager, and our software developer is Davar Senkovic. Daniel Stusi is our designer, and Mike Pena and Monica Jort lead communications and marketing. You can find additional podcasts, videos, and articles at ecorner.stanford.edu, including our acclaimed Entrepreneur Thought Leader podcast. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ecorner.